Good morning, everybody. Uh, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless the sermon before we start. Heavenly Father, Holy God, as we now receive your word, the gospel of Christ, let it change us, let it mold us, let it give us boldness. Lord, if there are any here who don't know you, let them fear and tremble and let them receive your word with joy. Thank you. Amen. So our passage today is going to be found in Mark chapter 6. We're continuing our series there. So if you turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6, we'll start with verse 7. And let's read the whole section to start. Mark 6, verse 7. The word of the Lord. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's start looking at verse 7, the very beginning. It begins, it says, He called the twelve. We have a pretty short section today, and so we can spend some time and review here this calling of the twelve. So to get ready to review, let's turn back a couple pages to Mark 3, and we'll remind ourselves of who these twelve men are and the circumstances of their appointing. Back in May, we discussed the appointing of the apostles. So I just want to jog your memory a little bit about these twelve men that Jesus is about to send out to preach and to accomplish miracles. If you're now at Mark chapter 3, let's start with verse 13, and we'll read through 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him 
We discussed previously how Jesus had called and appointed these 12 men to be his apostles. Let's remind ourselves of who they were. Do you remember how he called the ones that he wanted? He called the ones that he wanted? Before this, they were insignificant men. They were fishermen, living ordinary lives. Men who were not scholars, not noteworthy, not known for their cleverness, or their eloquence, or their piety. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are boldly preaching before the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees in Jerusalem, that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved, what's said about them? It says, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Even after three years of being with Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit, the marks of the life of commoners were still on Peter and John. So we understand that they were not in and of themselves extraordinary or exceptional. They were fishermen when he called them. And they had the manner of speech, habits, and dress that commoners would have. So there was nothing about them that made them desirable. His desire comes from himself and his divine will and from nothing about them. Do you remember that? Do you remember that this appointing made something where the something didn't exist before? Before, there was no group of 12. And then he appointed. He made the 12. So now there was a group of 12 apostles. He made something where there was nothing before. Do you remember how we said we often think of appointing as focusing on the person or the thing that's being appointed? But this word for appointing focuses on the appointer. Think about it another way. Did any of them have an inkling that this would happen to them? Before this, were they applying to be disciples to other rabbis? No. Again, they were fishermen. One of them was a tax collector. They were common men. They would not aspire to this. They would not conspire together to form a cadre of Jesus' inner circle. He's the one who's driving this change. Last time we spoke about this with regard to the appointing of the twelve, we said that there was nothing special about them, but that it's God who chooses, God who changes, God who equips for his own glory. We didn't go into this as much last time, but why does God choose men like this? Why does God choose men like this? Why does he want these ones? Why not men of education and pedigree? 1 Corinthians 1 that Scott read for us, it tells us, we'll start with verse 26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 
so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Did you see the reason given? Verse 29 gives a reason. It says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then later on it says, let the one who boasts, boast in who? Boast in the Lord. God wants all the glory for himself. In the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, the first two commandments tell us not to worship anything or anyone other than God. And the reason given is because God is jealous. He will not share his glory with another. That's Isaiah 42. All glory belongs to him. We even sing it in our songs and our hymns. So God chooses the weak, the foolish, the unremarkable, the powerless, the uneducated, the funny-looking, to display his power. Those who can't speak well, those who are not eloquent, those who have few great accomplishments. And he does all this so that when others see it, there won't be any doubt about who accomplished the work and who gets the glory. He doesn't want to share his glory with anyone else, so he will accomplish his work in such a way that we know, without a doubt, that he's the one who did it. Mark 3, verse 14, gave two of Jesus' objectives in calling the twelve. It was so that they might be with him, and so that he might send them out. They've been with him in his ministry for a long season, maybe up to a year or more by now, as Paul told us previously. And the time has come to send them out on their own. The end of verse 7 tells us that he sent them out two by two. He called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So the time has come. What we're going to examine now is how the disciples are equipped to accomplish their mission. He sends them two by two. Why did he send them two by two? instead of alone or in some group of another size. There's a few things that are in play here. The first one is the biblical principle that testimony must be established by two witnesses to be believed. This is established both in the Old Testament law and in New Testament principles that Christ lays out himself, as well as Paul commanding it to the churches and the epistles. One person preaching alone could be crazy, or they could be up to no good. Either way, they're not credible. Two people bringing a consistent message together have credibility. Jesus himself says in John eight seventeen that in the law, the testimony of two people is true. If Jesus wants the gospel message spread through the towns with credibility, one man won't do. But for the sake of efficiency, More than two are not needed. The scripture also has practical wisdom about this. In Ecclesiastes 4, it says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Jesus sends them two by two for mutual benefit, encouragement, and so that they can avoid the pitfalls that occur when working alone. 
Next in verse 7 it says, He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. All three of the gospel accounts together help us understand they were also given the authority to heal the sick and perform other miracles. We've talked about this authority a couple times now and we've encountered this particular word before. It's exousos. Do you remember that word from earlier in Mark when the people were astonished because Jesus taught with exousios? There's a few layers to it. First, it's authority that has to be obeyed. It's like gravity. Do you remember that? What goes up must come down. Second, it's an authority that is always true and it can't be corrupted by any inconsistency or hypocrisy. It's like mathematics. Is there ever a time when 2 plus 2 does not equal 4? No, it's always true. 2 plus 2 will always equal 4. The truthfulness of this authority by its very nature is never in question. Third, it's authority that comes from a source. It comes from a source. It comes from the one who is holding it. And it's not conditional on anything, meaning it's an inherent authority. An authority rooted in the one who's wielding it. It's an authority that only God alone can have. So Christ here is giving them his authority. Let that sink in. The authority of the incorruptible, immutable, everlasting God. Authority that's always true and must always be obeyed. The authority of the maker of heaven and earth, of all things physical and spiritual. The God who's outside of time, the thrice holy God, here gives his authority to common men. And then what does he tell them as they go out? Verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. We understand from this charge he gives them that they are not meant to sit down and contemplate all the things they might need to be successful on their journey. And they're not supposed to check all the boxes of readiness before they go. He wants them to understand that their readiness and their equipping comes from him. All the equipping they need had just happened when he commanded them to go and given them his authority. When he told them to go out and preach, he bestowed on them power to go out and preach. And he gave them the authority of eternal God to cast out demons and perform miracles. They're not, pre they're not meant to prepare for this journey by thinking of all the things they need or planning for contingencies. I'll give you an illustration. This, this made me think of the last time my family went camping. We've got two little girls and a third one on the way, and Grandpa was coming too. We've got a big tent. It's a really big tent. Uh, we had a rented trailer for Jolene to be comfortable. We had an outdoor grill, sleeping bags, cots, blow-up mattresses, giant tote containers full of cooking gear, fire supplies, outdoor lamps, outdoor chairs, baby gear. A week, I'm reading my list here. A week worth of food. You name it. Going camping used to feel a lot more simple. <laughs> A tent and a couple sleeping bags, maybe a little stove and a coffee pot, I don't know. So to get ready to go camping, it almost takes a whole day just of making a list, taking inventory, gathering supplies, packing it in the car, taking it out and rearranging it, packing it again so that it'll fit. And the whole time, what are you doing? You're stressing about what you forgot or what you might not have when you get there. 
You know the funny thing? The last time we went, we forgot jackets for the girls. And so we had to drive an hour into town to Walmart to get one. What's the point of going camping? It's to get out there and enjoy nature. It's to have time away. It's to enjoy God's beautiful creation. To enjoy time with your family. To put aside the worries of your normal every, everyday life rather than add to them. But adding to our worries is exactly what we did. We made the trip about the stuff we had or didn't have and our preparedness or, or lack thereof. Jesus knows our tendency to want to make sure we have everything we think we need before we embark on any undertaking. Is that what he wants them thinking about? The stuff that they have or don't have to be ready? No. He wants them on the mission. He basically is telling them here, don't take anything with you that you don't already have on you. You have everything that you need. They're not going to take anything with them because they need to be dependent on God for their daily bread and dependent on God for the outcome of their efforts. They're not even supposed to take a money bag. Now, there's a reason for this that we already understand, which is that they're, they're meant to depend on God for their sustenance when they go around preaching. But I see another reason, too. Matthew also tells us that they're meant to give us they're, they're meant to give their message without charging the hearers. They're not meant to receive any money. Let's give a little historical context for this so we can understand. During the Roman Empire, everybody spoke Greek, and the Roman Empire had really good roads. So they would have these traveling lecturers who would go from town to town. They would give a lecture on some interesting topic, and they would earn their living that way. And people didn't have movies or, or a lot of books for entertainment back then. So if someone came into town and they stood in the middle of the town square and they started giving a speech, people would come out and listen, even if just for the sake of novelty, something new. And if they liked what they heard, they would pay him. How articulate they were and how interesting their speech was would directly correlate to how much income they received. The more people who would receive the message and find it digestible and interesting, the wealthier the lecturer would become. The better you could tickle the crowd's ears, the more popular you'd get, and the more income you'd receive. Do you see a conflict of interest? Why? What's the conflict? The gospel is offensive. Verse 12 in a few minutes is going to tell us that they're preaching repentance. The other gospel accounts tell us that they were preaching the kingdom of God. So if they bring their money bags, what would the temptation be? If they charge for this, what would the temptation be? To preach the good and not the bad. To tickle the hearer's ears. To, to preach a message of adding Jesus to your life, but not repentance. To make entrance to the kingdom of God easy, to change what the kingdom itself is, to tickle the ears of the crowd and become popular and rich. Do you remember the last time we discussed the kingdom of God? We understood it begins in the heart of God's people. God wants repentance, a recognition of our filthiness, and for us to have a desire for a new heart. He wants changed priorities. 
He wants a desire for his glory and to please him. Let's take a pause here for a second. We'll look at the Matthew account because it adds more understanding to this idea of the kingdom of God in Matthew 10. It's just a couple pages over. In Matthew 10, verse 5, you can can look at this. Jesus tells them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Bren read to us earlier when we started this service. Why not go to the Gentiles and Samaritans? Because they're proclaiming the kingdom of God, which the Jews had been waiting for. They'd been waiting for the kingdom of God. We've studied this in Jewish history, right? We know that they were waiting for the Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans and reinstate the glory days of Israel. The Jews were expecting the nation of Israel to rise from the ashes and become like they'd been under King Solomon and King David, rich, powerful, renowned, famous, fear of them among other nations, a place where the other nations would come and and pay tribute. The Gentiles and Samaritans have no context for this return of the Jewish kingdom. And remember, the gospel is first offered to the Jews and second to Gentiles after the Jews would reject it. Scripture must be fulfilled by offering it to the Jews first. So this repentance of the heart and entrance to the kingdom of God requiring a changed heart would not be what the Jews are expecting to hear. This would be received by a few faithful Jews, but to the rest, curious at best, unexpected and extremely offensive at worst. Jesus wants the message to remain pure, to remove all the temptation for his disciples to think they're going out to preach political revolution, to keep the message spiritual. So they're not going to receive pay, and they're not even going to take along a money bag. So if someone offers them money, they won't even have anywhere to put it. So what else does he prescribe? He says, wear sandals and don't put on two tunics. But wait a minute. The Matthew account you just turned there, some of you might have noticed it says, don't acquire sandals. Is this a contradiction in scripture? What do you think? Anybody? (laughs) No, it's not. You can trust the book. You can trust it. Let me help you with it. We'll look a little bit deeper so we can put any doubts to rest. There's two different words that translate as sandals here. The word used in Mark is sandalia, and it means sandals, as you might have guessed. It's like a slip-on sandal, almost like our flip-flops that we would wear to the beach or, or something like that. The word in Matthew is hypodemata. doesn't sound anything like sandalia, does it? It translated literally, it means a skin covering, right? You think of a demata dermis, your skin. So this would be more akin to shoes, like a heavy-duty shoe. This is the type of sandal that John the Baptist is talking about when he says he's not even worthy to untie the strap of the sandal of Jesus. It's a heavy-duty shoe with straps to keep it on, like the ancient equivalent of a work boot or a hiking boot. What's Jesus saying here? In Mark, he's telling them 
Just keep the shoes you put on when you got up this morning. In Matthew, he's telling them the same thing. But the account also adds, don't go out of your way to go get heavy-duty shoes. Don't go get your hiking boots. Just go like you are. It's the same principle with the staff, which in Matthew also appears to be a discrepancy between the Mark account and the other gospel accounts. In Mark, Jesus tells them, bring your staff. And in Matthew, he says, don't acquire a staff. It's the same thing. If you already have your walking stick, bring it with you. But don't delay going so you can go find a staff. You don't need one. The word of Christ and the authority of Christ and the power of Christ is going with you. So you don't need to bring anything else for support. You don't need to bring anything else to depend on, and you certainly shouldn't lose your urgency to preach the message while you stop to look for a walking stick or an extra jacket. They're meant to have an urgency to obey this calling to go out and preach. And they're not meant to let anything get in the way. They're not meant to lean on anything or depend on anything other than the power of Christ. Let's read verse 10. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Understanding all that we've discussed so far, verse 10 is no longer a mystery to us. As soon as they find a place to stay in town, stay there until you're done with that town. Don't look for better accommodations. Don't try to find a richer person's house to stay in. If you find someone who lets you sleep in their barn, sleep in the barn and eat what they feed you. Be satisfied with your basic needs being met and rejoice that someone there received you and was willing to host the messengers of this offensive gospel. Let's go back to the preparedness, and I'm going to try to make this relatable to us. They're not meant to let anything get in the way of their urgency to preach the gospel, and they're not to seek their own material gain while doing so, and they're not to depend on anything other than the power of God for their success. So at a smaller scale, don't we let so many things get in the way? We're meant to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. So how often does it happen that you want to get set up to read your Bible or spend some time praying and and work through this in your mind? Maybe it's not the things I'm going to say, but I'm sure you'll think of whatever happens to you. So you're getting ready to read your Bible and, and spend some time with the Lord, and then obstacle after obstacle seems to get in the way. Maybe you like to drink tea or coffee with your Bible reading, and so you go in your cupboard and, oh shoot, I'm out of tea. What am I going to do? I can't read my Bible now. I don't have any tea. So I've got to go find some. Or the water's taking too long to boil. And then while you're waiting for your tea to boil, the dog makes a mess on the floor and you've got to clean it up. And then your laundry finishes and you've got to fold it. And then the baby wakes up from the nap and you've got to go get her. And then you've had such a morning that you're too tired. And you say to yourself, well, it won't even be worth it. I'll just wait till later when I'm more alert. I won't get anything out of it, so he'll, he'll wait. Pretty soon the whole day has gone by, and you haven't spent time with him, and you haven't preached the gospel to yourself. How many of those so-called obstacles are self-inflicted? 
many, if not most of them, if not all of them, I'm guilty. Anyone else? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be prepared. I'm sorry, I missed a paragraph. <laughs> Let me go back. Maybe he's called you to preach the gospel to someone you know. And you think you have a lot of boxes to check before you're ready. You think you need to equip yourself. But we all know that we can use that lack of equipping that we feel as a plausible reason not to obey or a reason to constantly delay obedience. It's a cover for our cowardice and our shame of knowing Christ. We use our perceived lack of equipping to continually kick the can down the road on our obedience to his call to share the gospel. Also, don't forget that you have an enemy. The enemy will whisper to you, you're not ready yet. Or, you don't have enough experience. Or, you're not eloquent enough. Or, even if you were, they're not going to listen anyway. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't be prepared. What I want you to understand is that when the gospel goes with you, you have the power of Christ. What does Paul say in the first chapter of Romans? Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Did you hear that? The gospel is the power of God. When you have the gospel, you have the power of God. It's not wrong to want to be better equipped. But the equipping that you need primarily is a spiritual equipping. And you have that equipping in the Holy Spirit. So as you go and you preach the gospel to your neighbors, know that the power of God goes with you. You should seek wisdom from the scripture and, and other mature believers and your elders to learn how to be, to be better equipped. But when he calls you to share the gospel, share it. Don't be afraid. Don't delay. Don't look for everything to be perfect before you do it. It never will be. If you've been saved and you have the spirit of Christ and you know the simple gospel, the simple truth of the kingdom of God, which is repentance and faith in Christ, you have enough. You know what else happens when they go with nothing but the message given to them? No special equipment, no money, no fancy clothes, no eloquence. The outcome is also totally dependent on the power of God. The outcome is dependent on the power of God. They don't have any responsibility for the outcome. And they don't get to take any credit for the outcome. They're only as equipped as he makes them. And they're only as eloquent as he makes them. And they're only as successful as he makes them. Their responsibility is to go preach. He, and he alone, is responsible for the outcome. Do you see how he doesn't share his glory with anyone else? But that he does let them participate. He gets, they get to participate in his plan. Isn't he generous? When the gospel's preached and someone's heart is miraculously changed and another name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, God alone gets the glory for himself. But he lets us participate in his mercy 
You know, we don't have to share the gospel. We don't have to. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we're not commanded to. We are commanded to share it. What I mean is that we think of it as this burden that Christians perpetually bear to our detriment, and it's so hard to do, and it's going to interrupt my day, and it's going to be inconvenient, and what will that person think of me after I share it? So we're kind of begrudgingly obedient to share the gospel sometimes. We have to stop thinking of it that way. We don't have to share the gospel. We get to share the gospel. We get to. It's a privilege and a joy to participate in the work that God's doing. And it's a relief and a tremendous freedom to know that we're only responsible to be faithful with the message, but that he is responsible for the outcome. So what will the outcome be? Let's look at verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 11 starts, if any place will not receive you. What does that mean? That means some of the places that they'll go, who knows how many, will not receive the message or the messengers. Rejection is to be expected. Don't measure your success by how many receive you, he says. Some of them, many of them, are not going to listen. Do you notice Jesus gives them the command to go and preach it, even though he already knows many are not going to receive it? So when you see an opportunity to share the gospel, it's not ours to, to weigh in our mind whether or not we think the person's going to receive it and then decide to share it. Don't let that be an obstacle to your obedience. Remember, the outcome belongs to him. Perhaps the person you're commanded to share with is an, obstacle of, is an object of God's wrath. Maybe they will be a display of his justice when they reject him and they receive his judgment. When people hear us share the gospel and they, don't re- and they, and they repent and believe, we don't get the credit for the changed heart. But we do get to participate in God's mercy to them. When someone hears us preach the gospel faithfully and they reject it, the rejection is not credited to us either. But we do get to participate in the display of God's justice and his wrath when that person's condemned. So what are they supposed to do when someone doesn't receive them? The end of verse 11. When you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. This was an old Jewish custom. Particularly strict Jews would do this when they would cross over the border from Gentile lands back into Jewish lands. It's a repudiation, a disavowing of anything to do with being outside of God's people. It's a symbol that says, we have nothing to do with you. We're not part of you and you're not part of us. We are altogether separate from you. We don't even want your dust. The meaning here in verse 11 is simple. If you reject the kingdom of God, just as light has nothing to do with darkness, believers are to make clear to unbelievers that they're not part of the kingdom of God. It's a strong gesture. It's almost offensive. But it's meant to be known in no uncertain terms that you are either with us or against us. That's Mark 9. There's no third category. You're either God's people 
or you're not God's people. You are either in Christ or not in Christ. You are either a sheep or a goat. He says it's a testimony against them. What does that mean? To testify implies an audience. Any Jewish audience receiving this gesture would understand what it meant. To reject this message of repentance and a changed heart is to reject the kingdom of God. If you think of a testimony taking place in a courtroom where God is the judge, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, those of us, it says of those who are not in Christ, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Those who are not in Christ, those who are outside of the kingdom, they are storing up wrath for themselves. And that wrath will remain on them on the day of judgment. And when the evidence is presented on that day of judgment, think of this testimony again, when the evidence presented, those who have rejected the gospel will certainly know that they'd heard it and rejected. Look at Revelation 20. Here's heaven's courtroom. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they'd done. The testimony against those who don't believe and who reject the gospel is written in those books. Let's finish with verse 12 and 13. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent They followed his instructions. Isn't it wonderful? They kept it simple. They had no incentive to enrich themselves. They had total dependence on God for the outcome. And they brought forward the offensive gospel that he wanted them to bring. A gospel of repentance. A gospel where you have to turn away from sin and ask God to replace your heart with a new heart. A gospel where the good news is so much better than a life of health and wealth or being part of an earthly kingdom that was feared by other nations. A gospel where you're not concerned with earthly things, but you're concerned with spiritual things, heavenly things. A gospel of repentance and a changed heart and eternal things. Verse 13, And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. One of the commentaries says that these miracles were the confirmation of their mission and doctrine. We've already heard that teaching. Just as Jesus' miracles give credibility to his identity and message, the miracles of the disciples on this short missionary journey were meant to show that they were indeed sent from God and that the kingdom of God was for the Jews that they would receive it. They confirmed that this word of Christ has authority and power over not just earthly things like spiritual illness, but even spiritual things. Let's finish here. 
I want to end with a couple scriptures and remind us of the eternal nature of the message of the kingdom of God. 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Matthew 24.35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is a gospel that when you believe it, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you repent, and you get a new heart, and you become obedient to Christ, and you do the will of God, and you live forever with him in his kingdom. And you recognize the eternal significance of his word. If you're in Christ this morning, and your name is already written in that book, focus on the heavenly kingdom. Look forward to the day when all things will pass away and he makes everything new. Let your reconciled status before God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit be your equipping and your preparation. And take joy that you get to participate in his mercy while you share the gospel with others. Take joy that you get to participate. Don't fear, take joy. If you're not in Christ, you need to understand this gospel. This is not a gospel meant to enrich you. It's not meant to give you power or status or make you more popular. It's not meant to add nice teachings and philosophies to enrich your intellect. It's meant to change your very nature. To make you see his beauty and his worth. To put away your sin and change your desires. When he changes you, you live for him. That he would be further glorified and that his kingdom will advance. If you're hearing this today, it's not too late for you to repent and believe on Christ before he shakes the dust off his feet at you and yet writes your rejection of the gospel in one of his books of evidence that's going to be opened on the last day. If you're hearing this today, it's not too late for you. But take a warning that if you don't repent, you're heading to the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death, a death of eternal torment existing in the presence of God's holy wrath. He poured out his wrath on Christ that you might be spared from this. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, as we understand this gospel, help those of us who are believers to take heart, to take joy to seek our spiritual equipping from you, from your word, from the Holy Spirit who indwells us. For those of us who are not, Lord, I pray that your spirit might awaken them to the truth of this gospel, that they might repent of their sin and desire a new heart and enter the kingdom of God. Have mercy, O God. In Christ's name.